it's very sad when you go to sleep at night and and IBM is paying you $19 per month. Uh, you, you feel really bad about yourself. And so for us, we needed to understand how we could unlock more value from the customers that were getting a lot of value, right? We had a very strong product market fit score. People get, were getting a lot of value. So it's not corporate greed. It was about how do we align the value that people are getting with what we're charging for the platform and the perceived value that they're getting from the platform. So it starts with my most controversial question to date. And the tweet is just a screenshot of me asking, is Popeyes any good? And having 72 replies from my team. So yeah, <laughs> this one is about, I just moved to New York very recently, a couple of months ago. So I'm learning everything American, which means that we have like a US channel on Slack. And I ask a lot of these random questions and it's part of these massive debates around, should I go see a monster truck show or not? Or is Popeyes any good? So. It keeps it keep things entertaining. I, I think the conclusion was that Popeyes was better than Shake Shack, but not better than KFC or something like that. So that's the ranking that we have at Mesa, yes. Oh, what is the what is top of the hierarchy there? Which was strongest top? I think it was it so it was like first one was oh my god, I'm blinking. It was what's the name of the family owned one? Uh, it was KFC, but there was one. What was that? Is it Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A, there you go. So Chick-fil-A, KFC, and then Popeye. Popeye was kind of the, like, it, it was the default option if you didn't have any of these other two, I guess. It's, it was the consensus at the end. Brilliant. I think I'll fit right into that Slack thread. There you go. There you go. Second one coming your way. All right. <laughs> so the second one says, got to love New York. And then it's a screenshot of my Airbnb manager that says, hello, Jonathan. Yes, the apartment is pet friendly. Please note there is a $250 pet fee. It's actually a $250 pet fee per pet that they forgot to mention as well. So it was $500 for our two cats. Again, <laughs> just moved to New York, the land of the fee, as they say. So, <laughs> so yeah, everything is about tipping and fees and hidden fees and everything. And that was one key example of that. We arrived at this Airbnb that was already like completely expensive compared to what you would pay anywhere and all else. And then they were like, yeah, 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 pet friendly. 500 bucks for the month. That's, that's how friendly they are. So yeah, fun experience. I'm curious, how often do you get asked this question of why New York over San Francisco and what's your standard response to that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a politically correct response and there's the non-politically correct response. The politically correct response is New York is better from a time zone perspective because it sits between Europe and West US where we have most of the team, et cetera. The non-politically correct response is that I, I hate San Francisco. <laughs> so I feel like the, <laughs> the lack of diversity there is, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the work diversity that you have. Like in San Francisco, I feel like I'm pitching 24 seven. Like you, you jump into an Uber and the Uber driver is both pitching to you, but also investing as an angel. It's like this weird world where everyone is doing everything and you cannot get out of the the grind basically there. Like I, I, I go there on like short stint of like five to 10 days. And every time I come home, I'm like, I'm so happy to talk to my friends that are like doctors and architects and that do other stuff than tech. So I love New York for that. It's like, I could get to go down there and there's people doing more stuff than B2B sales, product-led sales assistant motion stuff. So it's exciting. Please don't, please don't tell my board. Please don't tell my board is all I'm, I'm begging. Well, they'll see it anyways. Uh, I think Ruchin and I spent, forget five days, we spent two hours in Mountain View and we needed three days and a weekend to recover from that trip. <laughs> I get that so much. 
we literally headed to a comedy gig just to get our spirits up after, after spending a few hours in mountain view it just didn't work out we needed a good line and i find that so with covid there used to be a very good ratio of like craziness in the street to normal people and covid kind of emptied the street as well so you really just get now the craziness in the street as well which is i mean it makes for even the time that you spend not pitching there just terrible like it feels like a zombie town now so i don't get the appeal of of being there now uh, especially compared to new york that's so lively and you have the food culture and you have everything right it's just new york all the way absolutely and and yeah. as someone who spent a lot of time in gaming prior to this the way I, we describe sf at least between rahul and myself is just there's a lot of npcs this is what yeah for the, for those listening in who don't know what an npc is you should google it. it's the people who walk around in gta or any of the other games you like exactly. yeah exactly. the bots that roam around but yeah a lot of npcs in in sf a lot of npcs a lot of it, i agree 100% agree with that thing so i'm actually going there for we have a ball meeting in a month from now i'm going there again for a few days but i i always map out the shortest period of time i can stay in the city so this time i'm going like for four days and that's pretty much it so yeah it's yeah san francisco is not what it used to be and i'm not sure i i know what it used to be used to be like so it's the youth in san francisco i know from day one was not something i wanted to live in ever so i get that full of npc yeah i just want to take a moment to acknowledge what a great answer that was but and we'll move on to the next question which is much closer to home jar than if you can open the last week right so it says every minute we save in ui design is a minute we earn in ux research and user testing which is where the million dollar insights come from less time on figma and more time on maze design hq so yeah a great tweet from one of our users it it shows the value i guess of research that we're going to talk about today i hope for me it's there's no conflict there right there's no conflict between should you design more or should you research more i guess historically there's been a bias toward just designing more for designers right and now there's this big question about the democratization of research and the demo and you know we move the question from should designer code to should designers research and that's a big heated topic in the product space and so yeah this tweet kind of i feel embodies that 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 perspective got it perfect and uh, jonathan as a follow up i've heard you talk about how sometimes the market is too raw and, and really not ready ready for you and specifically for maze research as a term required a lot of mental heavy lifting in people's heads and the majority or the lack thereof of a market had to be solved for through education to paint a picture of a fundamentally better yep. more co- collaborative way of doing things right i'm curious and yep. this is a question two parts one is what can other companies who are building in like similar emerging markets where the vocabulary just doesn't exist yet for a better more efficient way of doing things learn from how maze solved for it and to re- really how do you solve that education problem yeah it's a very good question so i think it's a two piece answer as well so the first piece is about the content and education that we produce i think that you have to think through what is going to be your content and branding strategy to help people appreciate that you're not only solving for example in our case for better research so we're not trying to build a better user testing or a better zoom right we're trying to rethink the category itself and so how you articulate the category and how you help people get on board with the category helps a lot the second part of the content strategy that we had was about the ammunition that you give to the people that are actually embedded into the vision already to be able to sell it inside the organization and that was a massive part of the journey at maze 
our first employee, number one, was actually a content writer. That, and she's still here. She's our director of content today. And yeah, she's been absolutely incredible in both strategizing about how we're going to verbalize the category we're trying to create and put words into we are research, but we're rethinking the whole research. So how should we define ourselves? And also B, how do we provide the right amount of ammunition, be it education and ammunition, be it also customer stories, so that our users, designers, product managers can actually go to their CEO, go to their VP off and talk about the value that research provides. So yeah, for us, the uplift that we did was really about this content and education. And then I can talk more if you want about how our go-to-market motion, the product-led sales assistant motion that we have, helped facilitate the education of the market. So I don't know if you want to, for me to work about it now, or if you have a question later about this specific topic. Yeah, but before we jump into that, just a transition from the history of the market. Jonathan, it would be great if instead of us slaughtering your intro, you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, what your journey has been like over the past 10 years, what your careers look like, and what are you most excited about these days? Yes, well, heavy question. So, Jonathan, come from Paris, hence the accent. I have been in product my whole life. So before Maze, I was doing a bunch of things, but most importantly, I was leading design and research in different agencies where my role was teaching people how to do design and research and then ultimately sell these things. And so the funny part of the story was that, well, we were very successful at selling design. We were very unsuccessful at selling research. And the reasons were always the same, right? It was perceived that the long expensive, limited in data process. And so when we went to customers, we would say, listen, we want to research for your project. And they were like, well, if it takes eight weeks to run a research project, but three weeks to build something, why would we not just build twice? <laughs> and so that was one of the challenges that we needed to solve, right? It was everyone believed in the criticality of research, but no one really believed in the time investment and the cost investment that that implied. And so that led to building Maze today. And so Maze was really the mission that we tried to solve for is really the democratization of research. And for us, this was articulated in three ways. The first one was research needed to be available for companies of all sizes. So it's great that the most mature that have the most budget companies have the budget to spend on research. But to us, the ROI of research happens both at the startup level, all the way to the large enterprise level. The second thing was about making research available for all industries. The same way that the more the larger organization knew that they needed to invest in research, it's cool that B2B SaaS companies know that they need to invest in research, but everyone that creates digital experience should invest in research. And so we sell to Porsche and we sell to Walmart and we sell to companies that you wouldn't think of when you think about user research, anyone that has digital assets to present. And the final piece of the story, which is really, I think, the most important one, is that we sell to anyone within those organizations. And what that really means is that the motion that we created allowed us to not only unlock research for researchers, but unlock research for designers and product managers and product marketers and really anyone that's touched on the product development journey. And so that's been the journey for us. We are now a team of 130 people in 36 countries. We were remote before it was cool to be remote. And we exist in a bit more than 80,000 companies today. So we've really, I think, change the landscape when you come to research, which is my biggest crowd, obviously, but we're only just getting started. I think that now we are trying to rethink the connection that needs to exist between organization and the end user. I think that the future that we're trying to create is a future that blurs the line between companies and their users and where they are interconnected in shaping the products and the companies they are trying to be. No, 
I had a question, and this this is just the sheer scale of what you've built is is astonishing. Right, so eighty thousand companies using this. Putting myself in the shoes of like a founder who's just maybe starting up today, we're possibly in the worst recession we've been in in decades, and just looking yes. at stars and thinking you'll get to like tens of thousands of enterprises using you can be a daunting task, right? Especially in this market. As you think about your own go-to market, how do you think about the obstacles that come in when selling the concept of research? selling the concept of investing in research and other sort of allied fields and how did you guys deal with it going into this this sort of shaky market that we're in today right oh do you mean today or do you mean today or do you mean when we got started uh both so when you when you guys got started and <laughs> start, but also today because a lot of companies are having to rethink how they sort of get into organizations how they land how they expand and so on and people are having to sort of yeah. reinvent a lot of what they've learned over the last few years so did you have to go through a similar experience yourself as well yeah we our go to market really shifted with this market maybe i can talk a bit about how we how we started and where we are today and how we are adapting today so when we started we are really focused on our bottoms-up self-serve motion. That was the motion that led Maze to where we are today for the first three years of the company. From 2018 to 2021, we were 85% of our revenue was just bottoms-up self-serve. And the sales was really ad hoc, right? I was jumping on, on sales call. We didn't know what we were doing. We were stress testing the pricing on every call. So it was really, really an ad hoc process. Um, but it was really this product-led motion that unlocked the growth that we've seen at Maze. And that was for multiple reasons. When you think about what we're trying to solve for, we sell research to non-researchers, right? And so what that really means is that we need to expose research to personnel that historically haven't been exposed to research. And so it was not part of our master plan. I like to joke that building a company is a lot about shooting arrows and then drawing targets around them, around them afterwards and <laughs> saying it was your vision all along. And so at, at the beginning, <laughs> when we started, we really believed that we needed to build a better research. And when we released the product, our original product had this very simple import your Envision link into the product. It was a very simple integrated product. And that was the first step in unlocking this product-led go-to-market because then all of a sudden, not only the researchers had access to this file, it was also designers that were starting in a process that, were, that they never started before. And it, we made it extremely simple for people to both create a test, share a test, and then ultimately consume the results of the test. And when we did that, we realized, holy shit, 80% of our user base are actually non-researchers. Actually now, 95% of our user base are actually non-researchers. And so not only did we unlock research, we unlocked research for personas that we didn't really anticipate would be the personas we wouldn't solve things for. And so that evolved from 2018 to 2021 in helping us land into companies that didn't have research capacities. We existed in companies that didn't have researchers, which was the big, big breakthrough from us as a company. And then from 2021 onwards, we realized that we started, we needed to start layering more and more ways for us to grow. And so that's where the sales assisted part of the motion existed. We had this massive pool of, of customers. And you know, it's very sad when you go to sleep at night and, and IBM is paying you $19 per month. Uh, you, you feel really bad about yourself. And so for us, we needed to understand how we could unlock more value from the customers that were getting a lot of value, right? We had a very strong product market fit score. People get, were getting a lot of value. So it's not corporate greed. It was about how do we align the value that people are getting with what we're charging for the platform and the perceived value that they're getting from the platform. And so what we did was we hired our VP of sales, Will Pollers, which is still our VP of sales today. And he came from Mixpanel and Algolia. And so he had seen this product-led sales assisted playbook at scale. 
And in a single year, he tripled our ACV, but also on top of that, made that our revenue was all of a sudden 55% sales and 45% sales. Up. And so that was the big, big shift at Maze. And today it's 65, 70% of our revenue coming from sales. And it's going to be even harder in the recession. So as we enter 2023, we are rethinking our go-to-market to keep the self-soft funnel alive, but we are now seeing the self-soft funnel really as a way to, to fit into our sales and enterprise motion. And that's where we need to prove our the mission criticality of Maze. So everyone in the company is aligning on how can marketing produce content to help again advocate for the mission criticality of research. How can customer success help activate the right users and then unlock new pockets within the org to prove the mission criticality? How can we as a product build features that connect to the business outcome of your research activities so that even inside the product, you can see that the research that you run connects to a bump in your revenue or a bump in your conversion rate. And so that's how we're adapting our go-to-market. It's more than just a shift. It's like a full company re-strategy that we're building around our enterprise motion. No, that's that's beautiful here. One thing that most companies get wrong when they think about product-led growth is they think of it as a motion or something that's sort of standalone. But in fact, it's it's most often a philosophy. Coming back to your point that the first person you hired was a content writer. The first thing we did when we launched a company before even making a product was write an article about why we were building a company and what we wanted to do. And what we wrote about in that article is that product-led growth is a philosophy of work and, and not a go-to-market motion per se. The go-to-market motion is the manifestation of that philosophy itself. But it's it's beautiful to see that sort of play out in Maze and a lot of other companies look up to. So that's amazing. Rahul, sorry, you had a question. Yeah, on the flip side of that, Jonathan, as you have transitioned that, we've layered in a sales motion on top of the PLG engine. Zooming out a little bit over the past 20 years or so, we have seen the traditional sales-led go-to-market portions move out of the way and pave the way for product-led growth to kind of take center stage, right? And in your opinion, in your experience over the past decade, how have you seen product design and product development change as a function from the bygone era of sales-led growth to today when product it experiences like fundamental to your growth as well? Yeah. I think that what's really interesting is that because of this product-led motion, product has become more and more center stage of the organization, which has been really incredible. So more than, as you're saying, just a go-to-market, it's a philosophy around how you think about product and how you think about product, not just as a nice to have, right? So just like a sales rep, a company is hiding behind the sales rep, but that product should be the one doing the talking and that they the product will be the one actually leading the conversion. So that's... That's been the real shift that needed to happen within organization. And the beauty of the product in motion for me is what we're seeing, for example, with Figma, right? So Figma, what really they unlocked with an organization, I think it's a critical example in, in what product can achieve, is that Figma was not successful because it allowed two designers to move block around in, inside the design file. It was successful because all of a sudden, because it was product-led, it exposed the value of design to the rest of the organization. All of a sudden, you had a CEO in a design file. All of a sudden, you had VP of marketing in a design file. And so that's what product-led can really unlock for organization. I think that we're seeing more and more of these companies that are proving milestones that this go-to-market motion changes not only the way that we sell, but also the way that we think about company holistically. So yeah, it's super, super exciting to see how that's translating into products in general. That's amazing. And Jonathan, I had a question. So you were talking about your product-led motion and how over a period of time you've moved from being 85, 90% self-serve revenue-led to now being 65, 
percent plus sales led, right? And a large part of that is increasing ACVs, going enterprise, and a lot of startups similar to Maze and everyone else in the ecosystem starts by selling to other startups and other technology companies who get what you're doing. But the big money ultimately when you hit public markets is to sell to the G's of the world and the Accentures. And these are just logos I'm reading off your website right now. But as you mentioned, getting that $100,000 IBM contract and so on. As an entire organization, in terms of the product you're delivering, the customer success and service you need to deliver, what does that switch to, to being enterprise look like? Because that's kind of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? I could talk for 12 hours on this specific question. It, it's, it's a massive one, actually. So there's my main CEO hat, and then I do a lot of both advisory and angel investing on the side. And so I'm seeing this playbook over and over again. And I know that, for example, YC advocates for this playbook a lot as well. Um, starting with, as you say, bottoms up, you sell to startups that get you, and then you need to graduate, right? And this graduation is extremely hard to, to solve for, for most organizations because all of a sudden, you need to understand that you're not only selling to a users, which is the product-led part of the journey, but you're also now selling to the larger part of the organization. You're selling to the company initiatives. You're like It's a very, very different mindset to get into. And so it came to the point where at Maze, I had to actually write a memo called Going Enterprise. And I'm happy to share it with your audience as well if they're interested. But this memo was an internal memo about what it really meant for us to go enterprise because it comes with also a lot of fears from product fearing that you'll become a feature factory, marketing fear, fearing that all of a sudden we're going to drop the sales off. And also it's really a rethinking holistically of the whole organization. And so for us, we kind of graduated by trying to understand where we could unlock value from our enterprise customers. So looking at the journey that we had, going from an individual to a subset of individuals to then multiple pockets within the organization, at which point in the journey, people were becoming enterprise customers and then working on the story that we were selling to customers, because that's the big shift that needs to happen. You're no longer selling features. You're selling why you're going to be more efficient with the platform, why you're going to save money, why you're going to become more competitive with your platform. And so all of this we learned, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a massive, massive, massive process you have to undertake. I think the best analogy of heard of enterprise sales is that it's like passing a vote in Congress. It requires a lot of stakeholders and long lead cycles and a lot of negotiation involving so many people on the table at the same time. But that's useful to know. I'm curious for Mace, as you built out your GTM and layered in sales, what kind of experiments did you run at the beginning to kind of determine what was the right time for sales to reach out and intervene and break that self-serve flow? and carry users on to a sales funnel. How, how do you determine when's the right time to step in and what do what do sales step in with? Yeah, so we track around 25 different actions within the product that will lead for us to actually contact an ICP and qualify them as a P2L, right? So it ranges from different, so maybe it's a complex product because you can get a small team within a large organization that will get a lot of value, but they are a team of five people getting a getting 25 tests out every month. The, at the same time, you can get a company running one test every month, but they are onboarding 200 people within the organization to run those tests. And so it's very tricky because there's no one-size-fits-all definition of what our ICP is because they can be very different depending on how the organization is structured. And so for us, we try to analyze all of these different cases. So we started with one very simple. We identified that 
when a company that was an ICP, a 1,000 plus enterprise organization was reaching five plus users using the platform and testing once, which we call a, a monthly learning team internally, then that was the right time for us to, to start approaching the organization. Later on, as we get more and more sophisticated, we started layering more and more knowledge on top of that. So for example, it's better for us, a very counterintuitive, it's better for us to reach out to a customer before they convert to a self-serve rather than after. Because once they've done the action of converting to self-serve, they've already unlocked the credit card from their department. And so doing another buying process is very difficult. And so all of these kind of layers of knowledge we added on top of, and now we have a fully automated suite of, of tools that actually surface a lot of this well for us. Got it. Got it. That's useful to know. And uh, how adaptive do you remain? Do you stay on your toes with tracking what are the actions that matter more or matter less? For example, Mace's product roadmap looks pretty strong. Right? You're teasing a new product on your website right, right now at the moment. As and when you do new product launches, for example, how do you kind of stay reactive or on the lookout for changes in user behavior? And that path to sales may differ fundamentally when there's a new product being front loaded. Yeah, it's, it's a complex question because as you say, for example, we can release new product, we can release new content that will, that can trigger new triggers within the product to help us actually close on a sell. So it's very difficult for us to map this out super, super accurately. I guess you have to remain nimble, right? And accept that there will be a part of a gray area when you release something and you have to learn from the usage. So we are operation analytics team at Maze is globally reported, but locally sourced. So basically they are spreading their knowledge everywhere within the organization, but they are gathering knowledge for everyone. And so what they'll do is they'll have both proactive way to gather data where they will be monitoring the general pipeline creation and then reactive way where they will monitor new use stage and new use cases and surface those to the team. So yeah, we, we try to remain nimble, but at the same time, you have to be realistic about what you can really action. So for example, we are working right now on releasing what we call live website testing, which is Historically, we help people test their prototypes and pre-prototype. And in a, a two weeks from now, I don't know when the podcast will be released. So probably it will be released by then. We release the beta version of like website testing to the world. There's a lot of new usage. So we are going holistically. We define what is product success for us. And from there, we see if the feature is successful. And from there, we see when our customers become successful. And then we translate that into what can become a feature. But it's difficult to do the opposite way, right? Like you have to get all the data first and then adapt your strategy around that. Got it, that makes sense. Jonathan, I want to switch gears a little bit, maybe dig a little yes. deeper into your history in design and as a UX lead before founding Maze. Maze as a brand is pretty unique. The moment you land on the Maze homepage, you, you know this is something that you've never seen before and it kind of sticks with you and stays with you even after you've left. I'm curious what, when you worked on Maze's branding, and I know that you had a rebranding exercise also in the middle when you moved over from Maze or design to what you are today. How do you think about what the end user experience has to feel like when you work on these rebranding exercises? Right? What are you working backwards from when you work on a fundamental change in your brand? A very, very good question. I think, so historically, we were fighting against perceived uh, complexity of research, right? So the goal for us when we were thinking about the brand values was how can we be both approachable, something that people can really connect and feel like it's going to be very easy to involve, but at the same time elevated. You're going to get quality insight 
and you're going to get quality inside of the platform. And at the same time, it's not going to be scary, right? And that's that's the playfulness that you get from the brand that we've tried to create, right? It's it's about how do we make it look like a toy, but at the end of the day, it also looks extremely elevated when you get the final output from all of it. So we are very, very intentional about the brand. We actually, so as you mentioned, we wrote two articles about the brand. The first one is about when we built the brand and it was a massive investment. I don't think most companies invest so much in their brand early on, but for us, we perceived this as both a way to help educate the market with a strong brand. We could recreate the category we wanted. And at the same time, we had a unique challenge that was we were built on top of integration. We started with an Envision integration and then a Figma integration, Adobe, et cetera. And the thing was that a strong brand like the one we had helped us also land these integration partnership because we are the perception that people had from us was a perception of maturity even though we were at the time five people working from a single room right and so this investment in the brand was both for our customers in helping them perceive maze as something that they could take on and for our partners to let us let them perceive us as people that were companies that were very mature for our stage so it helped a lot but it was extremely intentional and the rebranding was also very very intentional it was like Awesome. I had one question, Jonathan. I don't call myself a designer by any stretch of the imagination, but having worked with a few of them, what I do know is designers have strong opinions about design and the design of others. Uh, so just I want, uh, to ask you a question, what are some pet peeves of yours when it comes to design and maybe what are the, what are the design elements and patterns out in the world today that really annoy you where you can't stop thinking about it oh and the problem yourself? Oh my God, uh, a lot. Um, I would say the one that pieces me off the most these days is something that we've actually done at Maze as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to self-flash for a second so that people don't feel attacked by what I'm going to say. So it's when I call it your gross model is showing. So basically it's when you, so I'll give you the Maze example. At Maze, at some point, I mentioned that we realized that organizations that were reaching these five plus team members were more likely to convert and more likely to stick around and more likely, et cetera. And so what is your, what do you do then, right? When you have this insight, this nugget of insight, what you do is you pass it down to a product manager and to a team of designers and they'll be like, great, we're going to drive more people to reach these five plus team moments, right? What you don't realize when you're doing that is that you're treating a symptom as a cause, right? And so what you're doing is, for example, for us, what that led to was we revamped our whole onboarding around this idea of collaboration. And so we kind of forced people into a funnel. And then we looked at the result and yeah, there were more team with five plus people, but none of them were behaving the way that we wanted. We're like, we don't understand. We did everything, right? We we put you in the same bucket as everyone else. You should be behaving exactly like everyone else. But we we missed we we mistook the, the symptom for the cause. And when you and everywhere you go now, you see this type of experiment and you're like your, gro your gross model is showing right now. Like I'm seeing your gross hypothesis you're trying to test and it's really painful. You're on LinkedIn and LinkedIn is like, you want to make this a post? And you're like, no, I don't. I, I commented. I don't want to make it a post. Otherwise I would have made it a post. And you know, all of these kind of features that you see in product, it pisses me off so much because we, I mean, we did it, everyone's doing it. And at the same time, you understand that, that it's, it's tragic for product experience. So no cookie cutter UX, no cookie cutter design flows. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. I think we can dive straight into rapid fire and close with one last question, Jonathan. Yes. This is, I'm sure you're familiar with rapid fire, so I won't bore you with the rules, but essentially I'll bounce five questions off to you. 
first thought that comes to your mind that should work no All actually right. no thought works best usually in this round so the faster you are to respond the better the answer you right. is all right all right let's go favorite saas tool that you've discovered in the last year ah i don't know if it counts as a saas tool but i'm obsessed with it i didn't think i could fall in love with a browser again i was like yeah you know chrome is like your old relationship you're like oh yeah we've been together for 10 years we like each other a lot and then arc was like holy shit everything's so delightful every interaction i'm just like that's exactly what you i wanted you to do like you i opened the tweet in your chat earlier and i'm on arc right now and it opens the pop up that you can open in a larger window and it's like what has google been doing for the past 10 years it's like you realize that there was something better waiting for you out there so it's my it's my love letter to arc amazing product amazing like i'm super super inspired by what they're doing perfect and the last three questions are all the responses are we're looking for plg companies here but the broad team is which plg companies inspire you the most and what which companies have helped you make actual decisions in mace first in terms of branding ah branding i would say at the time because we're talking about past of mace i would say invision at the time so it sounds weird invision's dead we all love invision but yeah invision helped a ton in helping the space and we looked we looked up to them a lot in what they achieved in the content strategy and the branding strategy and yeah so invision at the time i would say got it and product onboarding product onboarding i would say arc again if we're talking about today but at the time i would say probably typeform typeform onboarding was incredible and yeah they got to value so fast and that's what we try to replicate when we built maze got it and lastly go to market good there's only one the goat figma i would say that that that's the the people we've been looking up to for very i have pictures from me going in the figma sf office in 2019 and i'm like i'm wearing this it's terrible terrible picture but we were so 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 impressed with what they were achieving so yeah for sure figma beautiful and to end the podcast jordan the floor is all yours what do you think mace will look like in two time frames one two years from now and then 5 years from now what's the vision what's the mission all right so 2 years from now i think we'll have successfully map out the full product development journey and we'll have make continuous product discovery a process that happens in at least most of the most mature organization right so a new way of thinking about how you run research and so the product will allow you to both test at the idea level all the way to a post development level and then get this insights loop going and then 10 years from now I mean our our real vision is about helping companies build with their users right so i think the goal is to have made research the default in a way that your companies behave just like they had a room full of 100 of their users available at all time to ask questions from and so it's no longer the company and their users it's that all of a sudden it's one entity that work together in building and shaping the vision for the company that's what i hope we have achieved Awesome that those are some exciting answers for some exciting time frames. We'll be on the sidelines rooting for Mace, always looking out for the Mace website for hot new drops. So, excited for what's <laughs> coming our way. Excellent. Thanks a lot for having me today. It was a lot of fun.